The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Revelation or a Bible app on your phone or mobile device. And there are Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one of those. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Revelation's very easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. So turn to the end of the Bible and find chapter 7. If you would, please, we are continuing this series that has certainly served my soul and I hope yours as well. Let me pray briefly for the Holy Spirit's help and Lindsay's going to read our passage today. Spirit of God, we ask you to fill us even now. You command us in Ephesians 5.18 to be continually filled with the Spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, fill us, lift our eyes heavenward through this lens of your word, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter with them, shelter them with his presence. They shall know, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. I don't like cliffhanger endings, do you? 
I recently took my couple of my kids to the most recent Spider-Man movie, which ended with to be continued. I'm thinking I paid like 10 bucks per ticket. Now you want me to come back for part two to find out how it ends? I don't, I don't like cliffhanger endings, but, but Revelation chapter 6 ended with a cliffhanger. It ended with a cliffhanger. It's a scene of final judgment. People cringing in sheer panic, calling out to the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the presence of God and from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus. And then it ends with a cliffhanger, chapter 6, verse 17. The day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who who can stand on that day? That's the cliffhanger. That question. Who's going to be able to stand on that great and awesome final day? And that is a vital question for everyone here. That's a vital question. Who can stand on that final, fearful, awesome day? If you would not call yourself a Christian, you need to know who's going to stand then. And will you? Kids, you you need to know who's going to stand on that day. And will you? If you would call yourself a Christian, you need to know, will you stand then? And can you be sure now that you will stand then? And if so, how will you stand? What will be the circumstances in which you are standing that day? You need to know who will stand and you need to know how you will stand. And those two questions are here in this passage answered by two visions, two related visions from John. I'd like to see both visions answering those two vital questions. So first, who can stand then, that day? Who can stand then? After that cliffhanger question, John is now given a a flashback. Recall, Revelation is not meant to be read chronologically. That's not how this type of literature works. John is given a flashback. I mean, movies and TV shows do this, don't they? They flash back to something in the past to help you understand something in the present. That's what's happening here. John is given a flashback vision to answer the cliffhanger question. Notice verse 1 in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, So new vision. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back, holding back the four winds of the earth. Probably a reference to the four horsemen we saw in chapter 6 and those other judgments. That no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Verse 2, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, notice, with the seal, the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God. What is that? Well, it's kind of like the California state seal, which I'm sure you have seen, 
when you get a document in the mail and it's got the California state seal on it, it means that document is official. It means it's authentic. It means it is genuinely from the state of California. That's what this seal is about. It's God's seal of being authentically his, his, his stamp of ownership, you might say. So he sees, John sees this angel with that seal. And the verse continues. He, that angel, called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm earth or sea or the trees until, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So what's happening here is the, the fullness of God's judgment we saw last week, and that, that final judgment in particular is being in some way held back until, until the servants of God get this stamp of God's authenticity, his, his seal of ownership. That's how people stand. That's who stands on the final day. Those who have been sealed in this life with God's stamp of ownership. They have that seal, so they are spiritually secure for that great and awesome final day. These servants of God will not face wrath then because they have this seal of ownership, you might say, now. So what's this seal? Well, we don't really have to guess. We're told actually in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit is this guarantee. This is the sealing, the, the, the stamping of ownership. Given the Holy Spirit as the guarantee, the, the down payment, the, the first installment of what's to come. And when God makes a down payment, he's good for the rest. That's the seal. You see what, what Paul says in a sentence, John says in a vision. So take your pick, but we're in the vision. John lists then those who are sealed. Chapter 7. 144,000 people from 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we've arrived at the juncture where Christians rather strongly disagree. We've arrived at this point where there is some divergence among good, thoughtful believers in Jesus, especially if you have a background in what's been called dispensationalism. If you read the late great planet Earth, as I did as a new believer, or you have read or seen the movies of the Left Behind series. That's from a dispensational point of view, and many thoughtful Christians hold that view. So 
just want to say loud and clear, Christians can disagree on these issues, and that's completely okay. Where we're going to go here is a point of disagreement among Christians, and that is okay. But I want to speak to this briefly because it's a common and influential view. Generally speaking, dispensationalism sees the rest of the chapter as Christians who have been secretly raptured into heaven. And this first vision is of 144,000 ethnically Jewish people left on earth after the church has been secretly raptured to heaven, thus the left behind and all of that. And dispensationalism has, has therefore had a significant influence on how Christians view the modern nation state of Israel. And I believe you might lose the security that's offered to us in this passage from that point of view. So I want to submit to you, I want to argue that the 144,000 actually represents all of God's people in Christ. This is God's complete people, Jew and Gentile in Christ. Let me give you a few reasons. First, these are symbolic numbers. Remember, Revelation, oh, it's chock full of symbolism. These are symbolic numbers. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 tribes, 12 apostles times 10 cubed. 12 and 12, numbers for completeness. A thousand, a really big number for completeness. This is signaling to us symbolically the complete people of God in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Second, I want you to notice how these tribes are, are listed. Notice how the tribes are listed. You've got Judah first, though Reuben was the firstborn. But this makes sense since Jesus, we were told in chapter 5, is the lion from the tribe of Judah. So you get priority here for Judah. But then the tribe of Dan... The tribe of Dan is omitted. The tribe that gave themselves to idolatry is omitted. And Revelation was first written to some Christians struggling with idolatry. So that might make sense. And then intriguingly, the sons of the concubines of Jacob, ladies forced to be surrogate mothers, their sons, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, are moved up in the order ahead of the rest, which seems to signal outsiders from these other ladies, outsiders being elevated. Those who are outside, like Gentiles, brought near in Jesus. So the list itself is arranged to communicate some things. I don't think as a literal census of future Jewish believers. Third, later on, the devil is going to seal all who are his. So it makes sense for God here to seal all who are his. But I think most convincingly, the text itself is showing us this is all of God's people in connection with the second vision. These two visions are two perspectives on the same group of people. The second vision begins in verse 9. 
after this, after this, John says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing. Who can stand? Here they are. They're standing. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's just like chapter 5. Do you recall? John hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, an Old Testament reference. He turns and sees the fulfillment, the lamb slain for us. Same thing happens here. John hears this symbolic 144,000 people. He turns and sees an uncountable multitude from every tribe, people, and language. For those reasons, we could mention a couple others. I believe this is all of God's people in Christ, Jew and Gentile, the complete people of God. They stand on that day because they are sealed now. And it, you might be wondering, well, what's the reference? What's, what, how is this relevant, Tab? Well, look, if you're not a Christian now, if you're not in Christ now, you need this security. You need God's stamp of ownership, as it were, that you are authentically his by coming to Christ, by believing in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that you too can stand on that day. And if you are a Christian, God is saying to you, look, you are spiritually secure now. Spiritually secure, now you have my seal, he's saying, of authenticity. You are, as it were, tethered to heaven. You are owned by God. On that final day, you will not face wrath because you are secure in his grace. Think about the security of that. I've been reading through Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, do not fear. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Listen to the security. Just hear the security. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. He's saying, Christian, you, you do not need to fear death or final judgment. Have a holy reverence of God, but you not need fear death or any other fear. You will not face that final judgment because you are sealed and secure now. So much so, God has numbered the hairs of your head. He values you way more than a bird. And not a bird dies apart from God's will. So rest secure is the message. Rest secure in Christ. Fear not. Rest secure in Jesus. So who can stand then? Who can stand? That was the first question. 
All of God's people in Christ will stand that day. Those sealed, secure in him. But but how will they stand? How will we stand if you are in Jesus? How will we stand then? That was the second question. We've just seen who will stand. How will we stand? Well, back to the second vision. Verse 9, John begins after this, so new vision. He turns and sees that great uncountable multitude, and they are standing, right? Verse 9, they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. How are they standing in verse 9? How? Well, they're in white robes. Signaling purity, wearing the righteousness of Jesus by faith. They're waving palm branches, palm branches of victory. And in verse 10, notice, they are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are joyfully worshiping. Here's how they're standing. Joyfully worshiping, ascribing all glory to God for their salvation. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, well, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? Give me the significance of this, John. And John, kind of in a street smart way, says in verse 14, sir, you know, like, come on, you know, you know the answer. I don't know, you know, tell me the answer. So he says in verse 14, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Another controversial term. (laughs) These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. When is that? Well, I submit to you, when you look at the rest of the New Testament and the book of Revelation, the great tribulation is now. The time between the first and second coming of Jesus. Might things get worse near the end? Sure, but the great tribulation is now. John 16, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Same word happening now. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Acts 14, the apostle says, the apostle Paul says, through many tribulations, same word happening now. We must enter the kingdom of God. Or Revelation 1.9 reads, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, not some future tribulation, the one happening now. So these are people coming out of this period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus, and that's the time in which you live, the time of the great tribulation. Congratulations. As Thomas Paine wrote in 1776, During some dark moments in the American Revolution, quote, these are the times that try men's souls and women's souls too. These are the times that try men's and women's souls living in the great tribulation. That'll try your soul. This is a a wonderful vision of heaven, but look, it says we're coming out of the great tribulation. That's going to try your soul. I was at the the dentist's office this week getting yet another crown on one of my teeth. 
and I'm getting that injection of Novocaine into my gums. And that's my least favorite part, but I'm trying to cultivate gratefulness for Novocaine. I'm reminding myself as I lie there, yes, I would rather not feel the raw nerve in my tooth during this procedure. So I'm thankful that the Novocaine is numbing that nerve and gonna numb me from this entire time. Don't you wish there was like Novocaine for life sometimes? I mean, Novocaine that would numb you from all of life's hardships, never ever feeling the raw nerve of pain and disappointment and hardship and suffering and sadness and illness and cancer and lost loved ones. Living in the great tribulation will hurt. We are sealed, we are secure, but there's a raw nerve and it's going to get hit sometimes with pain. So God shows us here how we will stand then. Coming out of the great tribulation, it says in verse 14, look at verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We just, just revel in the irony and beauty of that statement. Washing your robes in blood, being washed from your sins and made clean, pure, holy before God by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the gospel. Verse 15, therefore, as a result of the good news of Jesus, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. You will stand in the immediate presence of God, serving him in worship, enjoying the bliss of his immediate presence. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The point is we will stand fully restored. Pick your tragedy. Pick your challenge. If it's not hunger and thirst and exposure, pick what it is. God says, no more. Fully restored. Verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Another wonderful mixing of metaphors. The lamb shepherds you. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We will stand eternally satisfied. The lamb shepherding you, 
guiding you to springs of water, and God comforting you, wiping every single tear from your eye. This is how you will stand. In God's immediate presence, fully restored, eternally satisfied. And that how is meant to help you keep going. It's been said that the reality of evil and suffering is the Achilles heel of Christianity. And it's it's a fair point in ways. Why does a good and sovereign God allow this or that? Those questions should not be dismissed lightly. But as Tim Keller points out in his outstanding book on suffering, which I highly recommend, number one, no one has a better explanation for evil and suffering than the Bible. Number two, Christianity says God himself entered this suffering world, suffered himself in our place. So he understands suffering and he experienced suffering and he experienced it for you and me. And third, third, the Christian hope is one of full restoration. Resurrection, new heavens and new earth. I'm not saying that answers every question. I'm saying this is a needed how. No pain, no sorrow, no hunger, no thirst, sheltered in God's immediate presence, satisfied with his provision, comforted by his love, every single tear wiped away. That how, how you will stand, is vital to keep you going now. So let's make some application. Let me just apply this as we close a little bit. Here's what, here's what trips me up in this. Maybe you too. This passage is teaching tribulation now, full restoration then. I kind of get those mixed up. I tend to think of uh, the timing a bit wrongly sometimes. I get the timing off somewhat in my mind and heart, and so my expectations can be off. And John the Baptist, I think, could relate. John the Baptist had seen the Spirit of God descending on Jesus himself like a dove, and then John later on speaks truth to power, gets thrown into prison, Maybe not what he expected. But Jesus wasn't doing what John expected. And that kind of rocked his world. Jesus wasn't doing what John thought he would do. John had preached the Messiah would baptize people with fire, with judgment. But no judgment yet from Jesus. 
So from prison, John sends word to Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Man, those are heartbreaking words. Don't you feel the doubt? The second guessing? The, did I get this wrong? Are you the one or or should we look for another? Can you relate to that? The unfulfilled expectations now, the, the disappointments now, leading to doubt, leading to discouragement, even despair. You see, John had the timing wrong, and so his expectations were wrong. Jesus brought the kingdom. It just wasn't time for judgment yet. John had the timing off, so his expectations for what Jesus would do were off. That's what I do. Maybe what you do. We want something of heaven now. We expect something of heaven now in this life. We get tribulation now. And we think, what gives? And maybe we got the timing wrong. We expect something of heaven in our marriage now, or in our kids now, or your job now, or your health now, or your finances now, and and good desires improve them all. But maybe we expect something of heaven now. We get tribulation in those things now. Tribulation in the marriage or with the kids or the parents or the job or the health or the finances. And the letdown is, is hard. And the disappointment real. You know, young people, young people, some of your dreams may come to pass and some won't. And you're going to wish you had Novocaine for this life. So I want to give us all a suggestion just by way of application. I want to suggest to lament your earthly pain and meditate on your heavenly hope. I want to tie these things together and and apply it. I want to suggest lament your earthly pain and meditate on your heavenly hope. I say lament because the pain is real. The disappointments are real. The unfulfilled expectations are real. So be real about that with God. We prayed Psalm 42 intentionally earlier. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why in turmoil within me hope in God? For I shall again praise him. Revelation chapter 7 is saying, you shall again praise him. In fact, you shall praise him in white robes with a palm branch in your hand, shouting with a loud voice, salvation belongs to my God. You will again praise him. For eternity, you will praise him. So lament the pain, lament the disappointment, lament the heartache, lament the unfulfilled expectations with that future hope. And meditate then on your heavenly hope. Revelation 7 could be great help for meditation. I've been trying to do this from Colossians chapter 3 in my own life. 
to review at least once a week Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So I've been reviewing about once a week. Lord, help me to live this hidden life in Christ, that my life is hidden in Jesus. And when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, I will appear with him in glory. Richard Baxter was a Puritan who suffered greatly. He once said, I can't remember two hours together that I have not been in pain for the last two years, except when sleeping. He thought he was dying, so he began to meditate on heaven. And those daily meditations on heaven sustained him. In fact, he lived quite a number of years after that. He said once, a heavenly mind is a joyful mind. I think that might be a bit of an overstatement. (laughs) A heavenly mind will generally be, often be, a joyful mind, but it is a good principle. Lord, give us a heavenly mind. Give me a heavenly mind, right? Or a more joyful mind. Friends, lament your earthly pain while meditating on your heavenly hope and all the while rest secure in Christ. You've been sealed, stamped as God's own. You bear his seal of authenticity. You are his. So on the last day, you will stand. Answering the cliffhanger question, who's going to stand? You're going to stand. And every tear you cried in your suffering, every tear you're crying now, every tear of pain and heartache and disappointment and unfulfilled expectations, every one of those tears he's going to wipe away and you're going to be restored beyond your wildest dreams. Yes, lament the pain. Meditate on heaven and rest secure. You will stand on that day. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you lift our eyes? Beyond the tribulation of this life, to see how we shall stand in the days to come. I pray for those here in the midst of suffering, those here in the midst of disappointments. Lift our eyes. Pray for those bearing heartache and grief. Lord, lift their eyes. I pray for those feeling 
just the burden of unmet expectations. I didn't think this would turn out this way. Lift their eyes. I pray for those who have yet to come to Christ. Lift their eyes and grant faith in Christ. Help us to anticipate that day when our pains, our sorrows are no more and you wipe every tear from our eyes. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.